Apparently, my eyes are declining. That doesn't happen to any of you guys, does it? Did it? Yeah, we're going to have to go back. Okay, so we're going to be in chapter 13 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13 begins another section. So, Isaiah chapter 1 through 7 is like the... The oracles of the Son. It's all the promises of Messiah, the coming of Messiah. How does this Israel become that Israel? The events that take place for that transformation to happen. That's your first seven. Uh, well, actually, you, you probably take that all the way to 12. So then when we look at chapter 13, chapter 13 now, we're going to turn our attention from 13 all the way to 39. We're, we're, we have a theme. The theme is God of Israel is the Lord of all the nations. So it's not just Lord of Israel, he's Lord of it all. And he's moving and working in their midst. In the first, from 13 to 23, the oracles that Isaiah talks about are going to deal with the fact that the fate of the nations are in God's hands. That, that God is sovereign, that he is, or events in the world are coming to his, God's conclusion. Whether or not I, we, we go with every single thing that happens has been decreed of God. Um, we can argue those things another time. But the idea is that they're all going to end where God says they end. They're all going to come together. Their fate is ultimately in his hands. And he is the sovereign actor on the stage of history. Now when we get to <coughs> chapters 28 to 33, God's going to keep bringing oracles through Isaiah to tell the people... Trusting in the nations is foolishness. Trusting in the God, trusting in God is where salvation is. And we trust in the nation. You put your trust in something other than the sovereign God who holds all of history in his hands, then that's a step of foolishness, ultimately which will result in a desert. So you have a picture of trusting in other nations or other forms of deliverance, uh, pictured as a desert. And trusting in God will be pictured as a garden. That when you trust in God, that's, that's where all the pieces come together. What that means is when we get to chapters 36 through 38, we're going to see a historical um, chronicle of the events that took place when Assyria gets to Judah. Now what has happened before that, and the oracles that we've read up through that time... Assyria has been a threat. Assyria has been a threat. They're going to come. They're going to come. Who are you going to trust in? Where are you going to put your faith? Where are you going to put your hope? The northern kingdom under King Ahaz failed the test. The northern kingdom didn't put their trust in God. They are conquered 150 years before Judah. But that same army that conquers the north conquers Ahaz. And Ahaz is asking for help from Egypt. And Ahaz is asking for help from Babylon. And Ahaz is asking for help from everywhere else, but not God. So the Assyrian army comes through and conquers the southern kingdom. So the same question is then laid out to Judah, the south, King Hezekiah. And it comes to King Hezekiah in the same deal. The same guys coming down, where are you going to put your trust? Are you going to ask for help everywhere else, or are you going to ask for help from God? And in chapters 36 through 38, we're going to see Hezekiah pass the test. Hezekiah is going to lay out the, the deal before the Lord and say, God, you're the only one who can save us. So from 13 to 39, that's where we're getting. To the idea that when we put our trust, our hope in God, he's the only one who can save us. He's the only one who can deliver us. He's the only one who can get us through whatever the, the struggles we find ourselves in, whatever things we're facing. He's the one that we want to see, that we want to put our hope in. We put our hope in a lot of things. People do it all the time. We have arrogance not just on the side of the atheist. We have arrogance on the side of believers. To be so arrogant to think that I got this all handled, I don't need God. I don't need to pray, I don't need to concern myself with him that's no different than the arrogance who says there is no god and i've got it all figured out in my own mind so both ways are pride and arrogance and in chapter 13 um that's where god's going to deal with he's going to deal with he's going to talk about the destruction of babylon which is interesting because babylon doesn't exist yet well the city's there but the 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 kingdom right you guys with me 
But he's going to talk about the destruction of Babylon, which is going to happen after Assyria. So right now, Assyria is in charge. So it's you know, probably at least 150 years before Babylon becomes a powerhouse. And, uh, but Isaiah is already going to speak to it. But remember, when we talk about Babylon, we do the same thing in Revelation, right? Revelation talks about the destruction of Babylon. Why? Babylon's gone. Anybody worried about Babylon today? Anybody buy anything from Babylon lately? You know, all the silks or whatever things are selling? Nope, nope. What does Babylon become a picture of? It becomes a picture of a rebellious man's pride. The city in rebellion against God is always laid in contrast to Jerusalem, the city of God. You guys get me? So one, it pictures man's rebellion, man's pride, man's boasting in his accomplishments and what he's able to handle. So when we look at the prophecy, you want to understand there's a real city who really is going to face the judgment of God that's going to come on the scenes 150 years later. So this is prophecy written before the events take place. But it's more than just Babylon. He's also speaking to man's pride. We'll see as we start to take it apart that, that pride is the thing that puts us in a position where we find ourselves in opposition to God, right? The Bible very clearly says God has grace for the humble, but he opposes the proud. The same way, the exact same word, that word opposes, is the exact same word when the, when the Bible just a couple of verses earlier says <clears throat> that we're supposed to resist the devil. That word for resist is the exact same word for oppose. So the same way we're supposed to resist the devil, God says he opposes the proud. So pride's a big deal. It makes all the top lists of the, of the worst sins. Funny, in all the top lists of the worst sins, there's a lot of sins we might think are, are worse that aren't there. But pride's there. Lying's there. Gossip's there. In, in, the, in the top seven abominations to the Lord written in Proverbs, those, those are things we tend to want to pretend don't exist, right? But those are the things that God says, These, this is an abomination, but we want to give a pass. Well, what's the big deal? It's a little lie. Sowing discord among brethren. What's the big deal about gossiping and saying things about, what's the big deal? But though that's the top list for the Lord. And pride is the very top. And so this oracle against man's pride embodied in the kingdom of Babylon, which doesn't exist yet at the time this is written, is, is all for us to recognize. It's not something that we should just sweep under the carpet. Well, I'm just a proud guy, or I'm just a proud gal, or I just, you know, but there's, there's worse things, certainly. Well, maybe not. Just remember, proud look has got the top, it's number one in the list of seven. So, keep that in mind. So in the beginning, chapter 13, we have God bringing together his army. How the, the, the way... He's going to, to deal with this uh, power of Babylon and their pride. It says in verse 1, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So verse 1 pretty much settles it. This is Isaiah. Isaiah is telling us uh, roughly 150 years before um, Babylon exists as a world power that God is going to judge Babylon um, for their pride and arrogance. All of this fits in. We want to understand kind of a prophetic picture in Scripture. Don't ever take the, the vision in Daniel, what is it, chapter 2 or 3, out of your mind. So how are all the kingdoms of men looked at by God? Well, they start here at the head, right? you got gold, but gold's moving to silver. Gold doesn't stay. Silver doesn't stay. It goes to bronze. Bronze doesn't stay goes to iron, iron doesn't stay, goes to iron mixed with clay. <clears throat> no kingdom is eternal, they're constantly in flux. What do we learn from history? Do we have any eternal kingdoms, human kingdoms that are eternal? We all hope, you know, well, the good old USA will be the first one. Well, just so you know, we're declining much faster than Rome or Britain or any of the major powers did in the past. So <clears throat> we're more like iron mixed with clay. We're falling apart much quicker than gold, silver, bronze. You guys tracking with me? 
Then in, in Daniel chapter 7, the Lord gives another vision of the kingdoms of men. And he sees all the kingdoms of men as beasts. Because all of the kingdoms of men, all man in his power and his search for power accomplishes is um, oppression, slavery, division. There's not a uniting there's, there's no uniting for the goodness of man. We can, we can all somewhat come together for Christmas, you know, even in World War II. World War I, there was a pause in the fighting for however many hours during Christmas. Hey, we're not going to shoot each other. You know, stories about giving one another gifts, and then, you know, 30 minutes later, you're shooting back at each other again. So, there is the beastliness of, of man's kingdom. What kingdom is eternal what kingdom is not a beast it's god's kingdom so you have this picture of god's kingdom now here's the downside of god's kingdom we talked a little bit about last sunday the downside of god's kingdom is it's also associated with the day of the lord so the day of the lord is a day of judgment so the establishing of the kingdom of god is going to pass through the day of the Lord. And throughout history, we have had little days of the Lord. Okay, Babylon being judged by God is going to be described as the day of the Lord when the sun went black and the moon turned to blood and all the stars gave up their light. What's he saying? He's saying, they're not going to miss it. They're going to know something has happened. They have, they have passed into judgment and the kingdom of Babylon ceases to exist and the Medo-Persian Empire enters in. But the same thing's going to happen to Medo-Persia, isn't it? The Medo-Persian Empire is going to cease to exist and what moves in? The Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire ceases to exist. What moves in? Rome. And the Roman Empire moves out. What moves in? You know? Mm, Ottomans, probably. Ottoman Empire comes in. But what happens to the Ottoman Empire after that? They go out. Then the British Empire comes in. And then what happens to the British Empire? Where's the British Empire now? It's not there anymore either, right? One by one by one by one, all the kingdoms of men come and go, come and go. They're beastly, they're oppressive. So man has this desire in him. We write books about utopias, right? A, a utopian book is a book written that says, one day all man's going to get it together and we're going to live in perfect peace. Okay, but you have honest authors who write dystopias. What's a dystopia? A dystopia is a utopian book that says everything's great, but even when everything's great, it's not really great, and underneath it all, there's all this filth and nastiness. Why? Because man can't accomplish that. Man knows that in his being. We know it in our core. It's why we like utopian or dystopic novels or movies or events because they all speak to something inside us that says there's got to be a way for us all to come together. Well, there is. When Jesus Christ is king, then everybody will get together. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The rebellion will be over. The corruption will be ended. (coughs) And we move forward. In perfect peace. But it begins with the day of judgment. This is the prophecy that Isaiah gives in regard to it. Verse 2. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the noble. So he's saying, put up a signal. What's the signal? A bare hill. So if there's a, a bare hill and you stick a flag up on top of a bare hill, you can see it. That's why you would use a bare hill to signal what's going on, where the watchmen would be walking for or watching for invasion. So he's saying, raise the signal on the bare hill, cry aloud to him, tell him, go ahead and enter into the gates of the neighbor, uh, of the of the nobles. Go in to the gate of the proud, to the gate of the arrogant. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger. My proudly exulting one. So he's saying to Babylon, you guys are super proud. Now, here's what you need to realize. Once, Babylon was used by God to bring judgment against Israel. 
Once Babylon was used by God to bring judgment against Assyria. Once Assyria was used to bring judgment against the northern kingdom. The point of all of that is, man plans, man makes his schemes, and the scripture says God laughs. Because we are free moral agents who do what we want, and we still end up a part of God's purpose. God doesn't coerce us, God doesn't force us, God doesn't do any of those things. He just says, I might as well put a hook in your jaw, because this is what you're going to do. Now, can you look at human history and say, yes, this is what we're going to do? Is there going to be peace on earth tomorrow? Half of, the, half of the nation said, or a little better than half said, Trump's the answer to all our problems. The other half said somebody else was the answer to all our problems. Are we any closer to answering all our problems? Even one step closer. And in 2020, let's say there's a backlash and they throw Trump out and the other half wins. Are we going to be any closer? I guarantee the answer is no. Because I can look back at 200 years of history. Did we solve all our problems with George Washington? When we got the Revolutionary War set us free from Britain, did that solve all our problems? And go president by president by president by president. I don't care. Pick your favorite. We didn't solve it all because we are not capable of solving it all. There is one who is capable of solving it all. And until man bows the knee, man's going to do what man does. What does man do? What, what, what do we know? The Bible doesn't say it. What do we say? Power corrupts. Right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely. True or false? Do we see it in our own history? Do we see it in world history? It doesn't matter. We, we have a swing in our nation right now toward socialism. I, I actually think there's some good things. Don't send me a bunch of letters tomorrow. I think there's some good thing, good socialist ideas of t- caring for the poor, of trying to take care of people. I think there's some bad ideas. I'm not saying it's the answer, right? But I'm saying we've tried it. Socialism has been tried. Marxism has been tried. Fascism has been tried. Communism has been tried. Capitalism has been tried. What do they all have in common? They fail. So do we really think a new economic system is it? It's only one thing that that brings the answer. So God in his picture of Babylon is saying, look, Babylon, they're, they're the king. And once I used their free moral choice to be a judgment against these nations who were filled with pride, but the same thing that they did to someone else is going to happen to them. That sound like something that is real? Do those things really happen? Man, for sure. For sure. There's, that's not the solution. The solution is not yelling at each other, beating each other, or shooting each other. We've tried it all. Man is not capable of governing himself. And someone in back will stand up and say, I can do it better. And we'll all vote for him. And it'll all fall apart. And 20 years later, we'll say, what a great guy he was. Yeah? But in the end... The solution is Jesus Christ needs to be king. So he's going to cast down the proud. Verse 4, the sound of the tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. So the point is, look, if if you're trusting in some other host, you're crazy. Yahweh Sabaoth. The God of the angel armies. That's what he's talking about. The God who created, in essence, two realms. Spiritual realm, earthly realm. Spiritual realm filled with angelic beings. Right? You know some of their names. Yes? We know Gabriel, we know Michael, we know Satan. Yeah? But the Bible says there are more than the stars of the heavens. Is that a lot? Okay, so God has all of those angels. In, in Isaiah 
38, I think it's 38, 30, somewhere between 36 and 38, we're going to read about one angel wiping out 186,000 guys. God has an army of angels that are innumerable. When he establishes his kingdom, bad time to choose to fight. Right or wrong? But man's so sure he can rule himself. He has his own answers. There is no God, we must save ourselves. And so that's how man goes down. <coughs> Here, he's looking at Babylon, he's saying this judgment's going to come, and it's the God of the universe, who is still over time, the father of eternity, so he is still over time, he's still in control of all the free moral choices of the agents that he has on earth, and he's saying, I've got the bigger army, and I've got all the power, you can't win. If, if God, according to the scripture, holds your life in his hand, he doesn't have to touch you, he doesn't have to shoot you, all he has to do is let go, and you come apart. That's, there's no battle. There is, that's why the Bible says he killed them with the breath of his mouth. That doesn't mean he has really bad breath. It means he just speaks and it's over. The God that holds your life, your breath, he's your creator. Ah, he's able. The God of the angel armies to, to work about this justice. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indig indignation to destroy the whole land. Why is God destroying the whole land? Because in man's pride, man is saying, I don't need you. I don't need my creator. So in the end, God's going to give you what you're asking for. But keep in mind, life is in his hand. So when you reject him, then why is he holding your life together? Why is he holding your breath in your body? Why is he facilitating your going on? The Bible tells us that God's long-suffering, he doesn't desire that any would perish, so he waits, right? But the day of the Lord is a day when God says, that's it, battle's over, I'm done. You don't want me, you hate me, you want life without me, but there's just one problem. There isn't any. So you get what you want. I, I have little three-year-olds who are pretty sure they know. I, I was having a discussion with a couple of seven-year-olds today. Oh, I, two seven-year-olds and an eight-year-old. And they're telling me, you know, how they know something to be true. And I said, so in your vast eight years, you have accumulated... Enough wisdom to say, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt what you're saying is true. And of course they say, yeah, because they're little dumb people. Do we, do we, sorry, they're my grandkids. I don't, I don't mean it in a bad way. I don't mean it in a bad way, but I do mean it to say that's just like us. Only the fist we shake is to God. And we say, I know this is this way, or I know this is that way, and I blah, blah, blah. You're so arrogant. You're a seven-year-old speaking to an eternal God. Shut up, bow the knee. He's king, you're not. So God, judgment day is come. Judgment day has come for Babylon. Judgment day against man's pride. Man's pride. The day of the Lord is come. So what is this day of the Lord? I, I just want you guys to understand the day of the Lord because <coughs> the Bible talks about the day of the Lord almost more than any other day. And the day of the Lord is not happy. The day after the day of the Lord is happy. The day of the Lord is not a happy day. The day of the Lord is a day when God judges. He hasn't judged yet. What little judgments here and there over little nations that we still cry about today. I get a nickel for every time somebody tells me this judgment of God was so horrible, so horrific. And I feel like I'm arguing with a seven-year-old. 
So you know more than the infinite God whether or not this judgment was righteous or not. Well, yeah, it's never okay for God to do this based on your infinite knowledge. Really, it's never okay for God to allow the slaughter of children. Are you kidding me? Usually the people who are telling me that are backing the slaughter of children right now. So that's a fairly inconsistent view. I'm suggesting that a holy, righteous God knows. And I'm also suggesting I don't. I don't know the pieces. I'm not eternal. I'm not infinite. God is. So I, like Abraham, can either look at my wife and say, she can't have a baby, God, you're a liar. Or, I choose to believe you, God, because you say this is good. Right? You guys all know my, remember my parable of good and, and bad? Since we're experts at what's good and what's bad. Right? Everybody knows? Everybody remember? Just nod so I don't tell it again. Okay. So you're going to hear it again. Now, when you hear it again, you're in trouble. If you don't like it, it's your own fault. <clears throat> it's been a while. Maybe I don't even remember it. Okay, so there's a farmer. Has a son. And somebody comes to town, and they give his son a horse. Good or bad? Oh, it's such a good thing. My son's got a horse. What a great gift. Everybody celebrated. What an amazing gift. His son got a horse. But the next day, he's riding a horse, falls off, and breaks his leg. Good or bad? Oh, that's bad. Oh, but then the next day, a guy comes through the village and takes all the able-bodied men to war, and his son doesn't have to go because he has a broken leg. Good or bad? Oh, that must be good, right? That must be good. So those guys go away, and in the battle, they win a great victory, and the king gives them all, all the gold they can carry, and they all come back vastly wealthy. Good or bad? Oh, that must be good. Right? That must be good. So then the bandits come to the village and they go through and rob all the guys who have all the gold. On and on and on the story goes. And the reality of the story is you don't know if it's good or bad. You assume it's good or bad. Oh, the horse is good. Oh, wait, he broke his leg. That must be bad. Oh, no, it's not bad. He didn't go to war. Wait, he should have went to war because then he would have got rich. Oh, but then when he got rich, he got robbed. You guys get what I'm saying? We don't, we cannot tell good from evil in the fall of man what we declared in the fall of man was not that we understand good from evil what we declared is we don't need God to tell us the bad news is yeah you do because you don't know what's good or bad the day of the Lord few scriptures we want to look at we'll go through them kind of quick but I just want you guys to hear what the Bible says about the day of the Lord. In Amos chapter 5 verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now that's a weird way to talk about the day of the Lord isn't it? Woe to you who desire it. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Well, that seems odd doesn't it? Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Right? Or out of the frying pan into the... Yeah, alright. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. <clears throat> Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. This is God speaking. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I don't accept them. Your peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I do not listen, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What's God saying? I'm tired of hearing all the praise and all these other things going on. Meanwhile, you don't care about justice or righteousness. So stop singing me your songs and bringing me your offerings. This is what the Lord is saying to Israel. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness when they wandered? O house of Israel, you shall take up Sikuth, your king, Kiun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I'll send you to exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, who, whose name is the God of hosts. 
Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. What's going on? All the people in Israel said, we're God's favorite. We want the day of the Lord to come. And God says, what are you saying? When the day of the Lord comes, judgment begins where? Judgment begins in the house of God. So God's saying, you foolish, you foolish nation asking for me to come because you want me to judge everyone else. But what does the Bible say? Before you judge your brother, before you take a speck out of your brother, do what? Take the log out of your own eye, right? Before you call down God's judgment on somebody else, you better make sure you're ready to stand God's judgment. Yes? And these were not. They were not ready. Their, their life was not a life desiring to follow. Micah 5, 10 through 15, it says, And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have no more tillers of fortunes. I will cut off your carved images, your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you, destroy your cities, and in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. But all that while, God is saying, I'm starting with you. I'm starting in Israel. While Israel is calling for the day of the Lord, God, get all those people. Get all those people. You need to make sure that you're covered. No? Because if you're not, it's a fearful thing to stand and be in the hands of the living God. And the only thing that saves you and I is Jesus Christ. He is our covering, right? He is our atonement. He is our cleansing. It's Him. And if you're trusting in chariots, if you're trusting in other nations, if you're trusting in something else, and you're not trusting in Him, that is a waste of trust. So before we call for the day of the Lord, Lord, come, set up your kingdom. Even, even so, come today, Lord. I, we long for the day. We long for the justice and mercy. Just make sure you're ready for justice and, and mercy to come. Make sure you're ready. How am I ready? Have you bowed the knee to the king? Is he your king? That's how we get ready for the day of the Lord. Because when he comes, every knee will bow. But if he had to force you, it's too late. You get that, yeah? It says in Zephaniah 1, 7-16, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice consecrated his guests and on the day of the lord's sacrifice i will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire on that day i will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud on that day declares the lord a cry will be heard from the fish gate a wail from the second quarter a loud crash from the hills Wail, O inhabitants uh, of the mortar, of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. All that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods will be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they won't live in them. <clears throat> Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. The day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. When God comes... You read about it in Revelation 19, yes? That's the day of the Lord. 
You read about it in Revelation 20, yes? That's the day of the Lord. There is a day when God will put down all evil. But that's a dark day. Today is a day of salvation. That's the difference. People say, God's not slack, as some count slackness. God's not lazy. God's not waited all this time. He's waited because he doesn't glory in the destruction of the wicked. But the destruction of the wicked will come. Man's view is always to the slaughter. Always. Years of peace are only leading to years of war. All you got to do is take a history class, for crying out loud. This is what we do. This is who man is. Zephaniah 3.11 says, On that day you will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty. God says, On the day of the Lord I will abolish pride. All gone. And what is left is humility. That's something God can work with. So if you're a proud person, learn how to crucify that. (laughs) Let it go. Stop trusting in self. And put your trust in God. Malachi 4, 1 through 3. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. What happened to stubble? What do we do in a field of stubble? Yeah, we burn it, right? Stubble's gone. That day is that uh, the day that is coming shall set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, listen, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked. What's that mean? The wicked all burned. You're walking through their ashes. That's what is being described. You're walking through. Look what he says. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. God will put down all evil. All evil will be put down. But that's a dark day. Every parent knows that it's similar. It's not the same, but it's similar when we say, stop doing this or I'm going to have to discipline you. Now, maybe nowadays you say, I'm going to put you in time out. I say, I'm going to whoop your butt. But the point is the same, right? Only this is the grand scale. God will drive out evil and that is the day of the Lord. And the day of, that's how the day of the Lord is described. Verse 6 of Isaiah 13, he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Here in chapter 13, God's going to judge Babylon. Is there a Babylon today? No, no Babylon. Babylon's gone. No Babylon. Did it get judged? God judged. Small picture of the day of the Lord? Small picture. Little picture of the day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord comes globally, that's the big picture. You guys with me? And so that, that's a scary day. That's a frightful day. The Bible talks about it always in those terms. It says, though, if you are those who fear my name, if you are those who are trusting in God, whose hope is in Jesus Christ, he says, then you're going to survive. You're going to walk over the ashes of the wicked. The wicked are gone. That's the picture. And what's left is a world that God will rule forevermore. But don't lose sight of the scripture where the Lord says, but I don't glory in wiping out the wicked. I glory when the wicked repents. Well, how do we get that to happen? Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, so go. Make disciples of every nation. Teach them the things I taught you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And know, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. What does that imply? The end of the age implies to the day of the Lord. 
till the day till it's over. Until then, <clears throat> there is a response for us. Isaiah thirteen seven. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every heart, every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame or pale. Uh, uh, Joel 2.6 says, Before them the peoples are in anguish. All their faces grow pale. That's the idea. They get all white. They get all white. They're afraid. Isn't this what Jesus said in Matthew 24? Isn't that, aren't those the exact words? He's going to talk in a moment in Isaiah about a woman being in labor. Have you heard that before? It'll be like a, a, a labor pangs of a woman. In verse 9 he says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. Lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than gold. And mankind more than the gold of Ophir. The gold of Ophir is the purest form in the ancient world. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will shake out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. God will put down all human pride. And human sin has cosmic implications. It's not just Israel. It's global. It's universal. It's all, everything, every part of creation Romans 8 says, all of creation groans eagerly anticipating the revealing of the sons of God. The day of redemption. But the day of redemption starts with a fierce fire. Why does God tell us that? Why was the prophet telling the people? Just to show how tough God is? So when you, when you love somebody, will you tell them where the road they're on leads? Look, this road you're on leads to destruction. Stop. God's not looking for the, the, the opportunity to rain down fire. He's looking for the opportunity to rain down grace. But that requires something. It requires repentance. It requires laying down of our pride. The bowing of the knee. The receiving of, of that which God has for us. It says, like a hunted gazelle or like sheep <clears throat> with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people. Each will flee to his own land. <clears throat> Whoever is found is thrust through. Whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. So what's he talking about? When this destruction comes, when this judgment comes against Babylon, what do men do in war? I can't believe people read this and they get shocked. God's just telling the truth. What's he telling the truth about? He's telling the truth about what you do. What do we do in Vietnam? You're going to try to tell me we never killed no babies? What about in Iraq or Afghanistan? We never blew up any children? Really? There were never soldiers who, who raped women that they found out in the field or in the jungle or wherever they were. Man's been doing it forever. When God uses man as the instrument of his judgment, man does what man does. And he stands guilty before a holy God. But man's just worshiping his maker now, isn't he? There is no God. We save ourselves. We're all just stardust. Bouncing around randomly. We randomly occurred. There's nothing moral. There's nothing right. There's nothing wrong. It's, it's all free. We're all good. We live in that world and that's what happens. That's what we do. Our nation does that in war. Yes or no? Yeah. Just so you know, we're not the righteous, holy picture of perfection. <laughs> we're sinners. Just like everybody else. 
This is what happens. What is the instrument of God's judgment? Other men. What does he allow? He allows the next kingdom to come on and say, we're better than you. And what do they do? They slaughter everybody. What do you think was going on in what used to be Yugoslavia? Anybody know what Yugoslavia is now? Isn't it Bosnia and Serbia? Divided down the middle, two people that hate each other. Mass graves on both sides. Whenever one's in power, they slaughter the other. Whenever the other's in power, they slaughter the one. God would say, this is all moving toward the final judgment of the day of the Lord. And man does what man does. What's he do? Slaughters babies, rapes women, slaughters people. That's what they do. That's what it is. That's the heart of men. And so this is what he's describing. He says, behold, I am stirring up the Medes. So the Medes and the Persians are coming later. The Medes and the Persians are who he's going to use to to conquer Babylon. They're just men who want to take over the world. And they're moving everything toward the final day of the Lord. Every step we take as free moral agents trying to establish our own power, our own desire, our own will is pushing time towards the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? Everything we do is pushing us toward the day when God says, that's it. And he comes and everything melts. But all the while, man does it, man makes the choices, man does it, and then he shakes his fist at God. I have a hard time getting there. I don't. I I try to have a logical mind, but it doesn't make sense. I'm doing what I want, and I'm shaking my fist at God. Why? You're doing what you want, but it's moving us toward that judgment. There says their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb, so they're going to kill babies, and their eyes will not pity children. True or false? When the, when the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, you think they went in all sweet and nice to everybody? No, God tells the truth. What did they do? They slaughtered. What about when the Medo-Persians took the Babylonians? What did they do? Same thing men do. What about when the, the Britons took over uh, in India? What did they do? Or when they took over in Africa? What did they do? It's the history of men. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is what's moving time toward the day of the Lord. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew it. Just going to be gone. It won't be inhabited or lived in for generations. Arabs won't pitch their tent there. Shepherds won't make their flocks to lie down there. Wild animals will dwell there. Their houses will be full of howling creatures and ostriches will dwell there and the wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand. Its days will not be prolonged. So this mighty proud city is just going to be, whole, be full of the night dwellers. And the mighty are fallen. And this little picture of the day of the Lord has been driven by human history since the dawn of time, since the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 10. And each time is getting us one step closer to the day of the Lord. But as long as the day of the Lord has not come, today is the day, now is the time man can repent. In the midst of all this, Last thing I'll share, in the midst of all this, God finds a guy named Jonah. You heard of him? He says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. No, I'm not going to Nineveh. That's the Assyrians. They're dirty. They're nasty. They kill people. They slaughter people. I'm not going. Where did he go? Huh, funny how that is, right? So he went to Nineveh. He walks through Nineveh, says, now's the day of salvation. God's going to judge Assyria. God's going to judge you unless you repent. So what did the people do? They repented. And what happened? God's judgment, the little day of the Lord, didn't fall then. It waits another hundred years or more. Till I think it's Nahum, 
Nahum's when that judgment finally comes. Is there always an opportunity to repent for everyone, everywhere, all the time? Yeah. Yeah. But in order to do that, it requires a man to lay down his pride. Yeah? And say, there's something greater than me at work. Something bigger. Something more. And that, (coughs) that being, that Yahweh, he's good. But he's not tame. So I'm going to trust in his goodness. Even when I have a hard time seeing it. Because I'd rather believe him who said to Sarah, you're going to have a child this time next year when her womb was dead. Because Abraham believed God and what did he have? Didn't he have a son? I'm going to believe in the God who is. And he will deliver if people will bow the knee. We can trust. We can put our hope in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, the opportunity that we have to come open your word, Lord. Thank you for just a little bit of traveling that we took this evening going through the day of the Lord. God, I pray that you help us uh, just to comprehend, to be able to understand (coughs) the things that you are doing, how history is progressing, where we're going, where we're going to be, where we're all going to land, and to trust that the God who put history in motion knows how it all comes together. Lord, I pray that if any of us here tonight are struggling with trusting you, putting our hope in you, God, that we would recognize the struggle that we have so often is our own arrogance and pride, and we lay it down. And we bow the knee and we realize that God has made a way. He has made a way so that the day of the Lord doesn't have to be the day of our destruction. But the day of the Lord can be the gateway to paradise. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, help us comprehend and understand as we put our hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.